Let's, uh, let's dig into this chapter. Um, the context, real, real quickly, as I mentioned, I think, at the beginning of our study of this chapter, there are two themes in chapter 19, the, the theme of destruction and the theme of deliverance. They go together. And the two angels that are mentioned in verse 1 are the same two that we saw in chapter 18, which we studied uh, partly last week and the week before that even. Abram welcomes them, prepares, in, in terms of hospitality, prepares this, uh, what must have been a rather sumptuous meal. And um, we, we talked a little bit about that. And Lot, uh, if I said Abram, I meant Lot. Lot prepares this, this meal for them. But in, this, in the context, you have uh, this just, to me, absolutely astonishing um, offer by Lot as the men and uh, it even says the young men, the, the presumably adolescents of the city, want to have sexual relations with these two visitors of, of Lot. And uh, we know that because of the word in verse 5, that we may know them. And again, just real quickly to review that, know is yada in Hebrew, Y-A-D-A, if you bring it into English, which is used throughout the Old Testament of sexual intercourse. So this isn't some, we want to know more about them, we want to get to know them. That's not what's going on here. And that is further driven home when, Lot offers his two daughters as a substitute, which I would hope you would all agree is absolutely staggering mm-hmm. that you would offer your two virgin daughters to a, a crowd of men who want to rape her. I mean, it's just, uh, it's quite astonishing. Did the, did the females have less value back then? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a highly patriarchal society, and uh, women, w- women would have been considered a step lower than men, if you want to put it that way. And uh, it, it's, it's quite hard to imagine that you would legitimately offer your daughters in this way, but that is what he is doing. And so then the... It tells us that the men of the city pressed hard against Lot, trying to force their way in, and he is rescued by these two angels. In verse 11, which Joe says is our last verse, they, and that means the angels, struck them with blindness. But then notice, who were at the entrance of the door, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. What does that mean? Even though they're blind, they're still trying to get in the house. And not to sit down and have a cup of coffee, but to fulfill this remarkable desire for this uh, sexual um, activity that they're, they're wanting. I think it indicates the, the true nature of evil. Now, I want to remind you something else that we talked about the uh, last time as well. I started this chapter by looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 34. And all we did was just show how sexual um, perversion, sexual um, activity is the beginning of a downward spiral in culture. And you see that in the third part of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 34, God gave them over that third part 
to a debased mind, a depraved mind, and then all of those vices. It's just like it's an incredible downward spiral. And I think we are to infer, and that's why I started that way, that that's what's going on now, Sodom. This is a totally depraved society. And it's, it's unimaginable to me, at least I think you would agree, how Lot could still live there. You know, how he could still live there. Because the Bible says he was a righteous man. And presumably the only one in his family because his wife, you know what happens to her in just a minute. All right, now that gets us kind of up to, to where we left off last week. Let me pick up on verse 12. Then the Med said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have had in the city, bring them out of the place? Verse 13, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people had become great before the Lord. And again, note the word Lord there is Yahweh. And Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city, but he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. That's how the ESV translates that. I want to make two, two observations about this. Number one, I want you to notice the term destroy. It's used in verse 13 twice, and it's used in verse 14 once. So it's used, in other words, three times. That is exactly the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 when it speaks of God destroying the earth with the flood. That's the same word. And the reason I point that out is that it, it's connecting it with the same thing that you see in Genesis 6 and 7. This is a moral, ethical decision on the part of God. This isn't the temper tantrum of the deity. This is a moral decision based on a just, righteous God. As the earth was uh, so bad and so debased and so depraved that God made the decision to, in effect, start over with Noah and his family, here God has made the same evaluation about Sodom and Gomorrah, all the cities in that valley there, very southern end of the Jordan Valley. And so now, and that's the importance of that word destroy. So that, that's a moral decision. It's an ethical decision on the part of God. And because that word is used, it is to cause us to draw a parallel to what God had decided in Genesis 6. Does that, you, does that make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? But also to me, destroy means completely. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. I injured, I hurt it, it's gone. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, that's why it's that same word. It's a thoroughgoing, to total destruction. And so uh, that's why that's an important word. The second thing to observe is how his sons-in-law respond to this. They're not taking him seriously, are they? The word, again, I'm reading from the ESV, the word jesting is how they're translating that Hebrew word. That's a word of mockery. That's a word of making fun of. They're not taking him seriously. Now, in the Woody, I think this this is where we would get to the question you asked before everybody had showed up, that here's where I think we have to infer that Lot's wife would have understood what was going on here because the angels are saying to him, you know, get all your family together because this is what's going to happen. Yahweh has, uh, 
had it with this this area, and he's going to destroy it. Well, and also by that point in time, the angels have been in their home. That's correct. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's just impossible that she would not have understood what was going on at the, at this point. All right. So um, what follows is the destruction, but more importantly, what happens to everybody. As morning dawned, the angels earned, uh, urged Lotum in verse 15, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters, we're here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. So the two daughters, but the future sons-in-law, they're not there, because they had mocked him. Verse, um, verse 16, but he lingered. Now the pronoun he refers back to whom? Lot. Lot. Sodom had become such a part of Lot, he just couldn't leave. I mean, isn't that, I, isn't that astonishing, really? I mean, despite everything that had happened, and the depravity and ba- debased nature of this city, and all that had occurred, and what the angels had warned was going to happen, he still, boy, this is still so much a part of me. So he lingers. But isn't it human nature to be fearful of change? Well, yes. Well, sure. But it's, I mean, I don't know how else to process a phrase like, but he lingered. And he's still hanging on. He's still, is he thinking, maybe God isn't going to do this? Or should I maybe be like my sons-in-law and not take this seriously? Or this is so much a part of me. I just can't believe no, that's really going to happen. That's his, uh, as depraved as it was, that's his normal. Well, exactly. Yes, right. I mean, and, and he is so much a part of this area. Um, and it maybe we could even conclude it's become so much a part of him. Joe? Is it also true that he had accumulated wealth? And- oh, Absolutely. Well, he, he had been a wealthy man when he and Abram divided and, and settled. So, I mean, respect. Is a part of that just, I'm, I'm walking away from everything? And Absolutely. 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 I mean, he, everything, and that's perhaps what you're getting at too, everything that defined Lot, what he considered to be important, his security, his identity, he's going to have to give all that up. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be wiped out. And God is saying, get out of there. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's everything that defined him. Um, and the same thing, Abraham doesn't look at things like that, does he? Abraham does not have that same perspective on things. So it's that contrast is a contrast we are intended to draw between Lot and Abraham. So now, continuing with that same verse, uh, verse 16. So the men, and again, the men would be the two angels, verse 1, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Credibly important statement. The Lord being merciful to him. That explains, that explains why these angels seize him. Because, and I'm saying this, just humanly. If I were God, I would have said, if you're hanging on to this, I'm not going to force you to leave. Because in effect, when they seize him, they're forcing him to leave Sodom. 
And this statement is the reason Yahweh is being merciful to him. Does he deserve it? No. Has he merited this? Hardly. Does he deserve this kind of act? No. No. And that's the key. Now listen, this is really important. God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is merciful. And in his dealings with Lot, you really see that. Because the New Testament in Hebrews, and what we'll read a little bit a little bit, does declare that Lot is righteous. Lot what? is righteous. I mean, that he, you know, I am expecting to see Lot in heaven because of how the Bible carries. But it's just, it, does he deserve this? Does he, is it, no. But the Lord being merciful, they brought him out and set him outside the city. So I don't know how else to interpret verse 16 than that they forced him to leave Sodom. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life, meaning presumably one of the angels. Do not look back. Do not stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be slept, swept away. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has not found favor in your, has found favor in your sight, excuse me, and you have shown me great kindness. I want to introduce you to a word, and I don't want you to ever forget this word. We're going to see this in the book of Genesis. It's going to keep coming up. Again, I'm reading from the ESV translation. The term in, in uh, their translation is to show me great kindness. Are there any translations have anything different than that? Does anybody have loving kindness? Yeah. Okay, loving kindness. It's sometimes translated loving kindness. It's sometimes translated loving kindness. It's sometimes translated loyal love. It's sometimes translated covenant love. And that Hebrew word, all of these, all of these are translating this word. The Hebrew word, and honestly, it's one of the most important words in the, New, in the Old Testament. It really is. And I, I don't think I've ever other than the name of Yahweh, I've ever taught you a Hebrew word. But this is one of them. The Hebrew language has no vowels, so it's only consonant. You have to try to figure out what the vowels would be. This is pretty legitimate. It has a guttural sound to it, chesed. It's pronounced chesed. And so chesed is a, an extremely important word in the Old Testament because it defines how God deals with humanity. God's covenant love, his loyal love, his loving kindness, his extreme kindness, it's the magnanimous, gracious, compassionate acts of God. Not because humanity deserves it. And Lot does not deserve what God is doing here. But nonetheless, Lot recognizes it. And so this term that's used here really illustrates your chesed in saving my life. So he recognizes that. But this is extraordinary. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. 
is not a little one, and my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, for I will not destroy the city of which you are speaking. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. The name of the city is called Zor. So if you look on the map that I gave you a couple of weeks ago, uh, you, you should be now pretty oriented to this. But it's almost certain that so- there's a little box here, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's this whole valley, the very southern end of the Jordan Valley, little box with an arrow. And then you see right below that Zor, Z-O-A-R. See it? Those of you that have the map out. Okay, that's so you can see it's the very southern end of the Dead Sea, the very southern end of the Jordan Valley on the eastern side. And so for reasons that it just doesn't explain it, we don't know why, but he makes this plea, let me go to Zor. I don't want to go up in the hills. And the angel says, okay, you may go there. And so he cut, he cut, uh, cut a lot, a lot, of, a lot of slack, you know. I mean, that's he, called grace. Dragging <laughs> his heels, but but uh, didn't the Lord tell Abraham that his descendants would populate the earth, or worse than that? That's correct. Oh, sure, absolutely. A lot didn't know that, you know. He just he didn't. Well, I don't know if he did or not, but well, I. You know, you not, have to save him because they needed uh, more people from his lineage, huh? Not lots. No? It will not come through Lot. As a matter of fact, you're going to see at the end of this section, Lot will have sexual intercourse with his two daughters, yeah. which will produce the Moabites and the Ammonites, okay. who are the historic enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. Or the historic what? The historic enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. Oh, okay. we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay. But Lot still ended up with grace somehow. Is that what you said later in life? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and that's, that is really the point of this section with those key words that I tried to identify as we read through this narrative. God is being incredibly gracious to Lot. I mean, everything we've read about Lot would certainly indicate he doesn't deserve this. He certainly didn't merit this. But the Bible says Lot is righteous, which is really remarkable, but that's what the Bible declares. And so God is rescuing him. As I said, it, I repeated it at the beginning of this morning, and I said it last week when we started Genesis 19, there are two key words, two, two key themes in this chapter, destruction and deliverance. That in the midst of destruction, God is still delivering somebody. And in this case, it's Lot. Does he deserve it? Absolutely not. Lot magnified the importance of this character trait of God Almighty, chesed, the Hebrew word chesed. This loving, loyal kindness and love and grace and compassion. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing quality of God. But see, that's, this, this is what the Bible is doing. It is presenting God as just, but also gracious. As righteous and holy, but also compassionate. And aren't, aren't you thankful that's God? Yeah. 
Because if God chose only to deal with the human race on the basis of justice, there would be no hope for the human race. But his grace and compassion and mercy, of course, is what eventually, in terms of the redemptive message of the Bible, is what will produce Jesus. All right, now, um, any questions? I mean, it's a fairly simple narrative to understand, but... What happens in the next couple of verses is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually the whole southern valley. There's more than just Sodom. Sodom, Gomorrah, and a bunch of villages and cities there. But I want to I draw, draw a conclusion from this in just a minute. But uh, is everybody with me? Any questions? I got one. Yeah. Lot was the nephew of Abram. That's correct. So he was a lot younger. That's correct. That's why I do so naive. <laughs> I do know some pretty old naive people too, but yeah, yeah. May, maybe. But I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's look at verse twenty-three then. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Remember that's that little town the angels let him go to. Verse twenty-four. Then, so the, 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 the language we're to understand, now that Lot is safe, now God's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole valley. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This is a very important word. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This term over, that I'm, again, I'm reading from the ESV, this term overthrew or overthrow, that's an unusual word to use. You would think he destroyed it. He wiped it out. But it's he overthrew. It's a term of total destruction. It will be used of the later destruction of the Canaanites under Joshua in the conquest. So this word, overthrow, God is choosing to completely and totally destroy. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and following, the Hebrew word is exactly, excuse me, the Greek word is exactly the same idea of what God will do at the end of history. He will overthrow every part of earth that's in rebellion against him. So this term, overthrow, again, ESV translates it that way. This is thorough, total destruction. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him. So what does that mean? She left Sodom after he did. That's the only thing we can infer. She, she did not follow with him. She's holding on. And it tells us she looked back. That's how ESV is translated. The, the Hebrew word there is, this isn't, oh my, look what's happening. Is she turned and gazes intently on her home, on Sodom. I mean, she, it's not a quick look. She is gazing intently. And the consequence, she became a pillar of salt. As one writer put it, this pillar of salt is a monument to disobedience. 
She defied the clear warning of the angels. And so she's a pillar of salt. When I led my trips to Israel, we always were down at the Dead Sea, and it was always a, a wonderful place to visit, actually. And uh, we would go to the very southern part of the Dead Sea, that whole valley, which is about 1,300 feet below sea level. You go a little bit south on the road there, the main road, north-south road. There, Right along the road, there's this enormous pillar of salt. Now, <clears throat> I don't know... <laughs> of anyone believes that that's the same pillar. It was constructed by the archaeological and antiquities authority of Israel as a tourist uh, thing. But they erected it on the spot where they think, very close to the spot where they think uh, she would have been. So, I mean, it is very, it's, it's very, very clear, very, very evident uh, what, uh, what, what happened here. So it's a pillar, it's a monument to this woman and um, in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, I say that only as a reference. The Lord Jesus, the only place he says that, the Lord Jesus says this as a warning. Remember Lot's wife. Luke 17, 32. So the, the idea of Lot's wife is not only, I mean, it was a physical memorial, or if you want to put it that way, that people would have seen for years. I, I don't think it would have been centuries, certainly not 4,000 years. But Jesus then says metaphorically, remember Lot's wife. What the Bible says over and over and over again to us is remember, learn the lessons of the people from the Old Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as he quote, after the end of that section, he had quoted, I think it was like a dozen times from the, the Old Testament. And he says, these things are told to us that we might learn from them. I'm paraphrasing his point. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to study the Old Testament, because each one of these narratives, we are to learn something from them. You know, one of the things that, um, if I can put it this way, I, I hope this doesn't sound... too close to home. But I've thought about this a great deal because of what I see happening to our country. But certainly another lesson to be learned from both houses. Lot lingered and just would not get out and had to literally pull him out. And Lot's wife, that now monument to her her uh, unfaithful disobedience, is no good, no good in a person's life can come from loving a society that is morally and spiritually bankrupt. Is that important for us in 2016? You know, I just, we have to be careful. We have to be careful in thinking about the things that are going on in our culture. I mean, I love the United States. I, Peggy and our kids are adopted. We all, they both came from another country. But uh, we always said to them that, you know, we're very thankful that the Lord gave you to us so that you could be raised in the United States because one could have been raised in Korea, the other one could have been raised in Mexico. But I say that because I still look at my society and my culture now, and, you know, it's important that we don't cling to this so tightly 
because in my judgment, you may disagree with me on this, but in my judgment, the United States of America is a nation under judgment. I don't think we should ask the question, is God going to judge America? I think it's already begun. We are a nation under judgment. And the kinds of things that are happening in our society are that downward spiral we looked at last week at the end of, book, uh, of Romans chapter 1. And so it's only, it's only to do this. No good can come in our lives for clinging to a society that's morally and spiritually bankrupt. We should be praying, not for the status quo, but that God would renew our nation spiritually. Because if he does not choose to do that, both biblical history and human history tells us this nation will not hold together. And I don't mean tomorrow it's going to fall apart. That, that, that's not the right way to conclude it. But it's just we are a nation that is experiencing the moral and spiritual bankruptcy that the Bible warns us about over and over and over and over again. And the solution, and I know this is a hard thing because we're in the middle of a presidential cycle, but the solution is not a political solution. The solution is a spiritual solution. God needs to change the heart of people. Jim, is there a, is it our nation or is it our world? Well, it's, it's our whole world, but I just meant we live you know, in yeah. the United States. Yeah. But, you know. I mean, there's not another nation. No, there's that, no. That is, that is following this book more than us, right? I mean, Probably, well, uh, yeah, I mean, you could maybe make an argument about a few here and there, but for the most part, you're right. I mean, this is the problem of humanity. It's always been the problem of right. humanity. But we who love our country, and I, I know you do too, it's just we have to be very careful about what we're willing to hang on to in this country. Because it's, uh, anyway, I better stop. So I'm going to stop. I'm not saying anything more about that. Verse 27, and Abram went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He's up in Mamre. Remember, you look at your map, up in Mamre. But remember, the Dead Sea, that way, this is it's low. He's high, and he's looking down the valley. What does he see? You look down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley, and look, held the smoke of the land went up like, that's a simile, like the smoke of a furnace. So Abraham is watching the destruction of that valley. Verse 29 is a very, very, very important verse. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. Now that word remembered, that doesn't mean God had forgot about him and all of a sudden his memory is, that's not what it means. The term remembered is used throughout the Old Testament as covenant faithfulness. What does that mean? God remembered. It is the covenantal arrangement that he had with Abraham. God remembered that. He just judged Sodom and Gomorrah. But he remembers the covenant with Abraham. His dealings with Abraham are based on a covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. And God remembers that and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So it, you have two things here. 
God's incredible chesed toward Lot and God's incredible covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Two things. Both exemplify God's grace. Why did he choose Abraham? The Bible doesn't say. It certainly wasn't anything Abraham did. Why did he rescue Lot? It certainly isn't because of anything he did. But it's just reminding us in the midst of this profoundly important series of actions by God that he's a gracious God, he's a merciful God, but he's a God of covenant faithfulness. And for you and me in 2016 on this side of the cross, if you put your faith in Christ, you are in a covenant relationship with God. It's called the new covenant which has many, many, many promises to it. And so God looks at Darrow and he remembers his covenant. Looks at Woody, he remembers his covenant. Looks at Tom, he remembers his covenant. He's in a covenantal relationship with you. And I'm saying that because that's one of the takeaways with us. Our God does not forget his promises. Because you would read this, oh my goodness, God, God, what are you doing? Ah, I remember it. Don't forget Abraham. I made a lot of promises to him. And I showed my mercy to Lot. That's the kind of God I am. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mark. Lot was saved not because of his righteousness, but because of Abraham? Or a little bit of both? Well, Well, he is called, declared, if you will, to be righteous. So certainly it is on that basis, I would think, that God shows the mercy to him. But two, it is his relationship with Abram. He's his nephew. That's Lot is Abram's nephew. And that probably has something to do with what God is doing too. So, I mean, in that sense. But I would put the priority on his relationship with God. He's righteous. As well as his relationship with Abraham, the covenant bearer there of that great covenant. That can apply to us that we need to try to live as righteous as we can, but our factor that would save us is our relationship with Jesus and not our own? That, well, certainly. Our, what, yes, our position is defined by our relationship with Christ, who declares us righteous when we put our faith in him. And then the consequence of that is the changed life that we begin to live. To live. But our the, I just make sure this is clear. The righteousness that, that is to characterize our life, and it's how we live, is not what saves us. It's our faith in Christ and his finished work that results in us being declared righteous, being justified, and all that stuff, which is then our secure position. But yes, our obligation, uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with using that, where our obligation then is to begin to walk in loving obedience with the Lord. And, but that's what sanctification is all about, and that's what that process of sanctification is all about. I always like to put it in that the good things or the thing, great things we do or whatever you call it or is out of gratitude thanking him for dying for our sins. Yeah. So that's where I kind of Absolutely. It. That's what loving obedience is. We mm-hmm. love him now. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, since you love me, keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. There's one more part of the Lot story, which is almost as remarkable of everything else. But it's his two daughters. But this is very, it says something about Lot and his family, but it also is important for the history of Israel. 
So let me do both of those in verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Now Lot went up out of Zor. Remember, that's that little city in the very end of the valley, right right near the Dead Sea. If you ever go there, you can see it. We know exactly where Zor was. And lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zor. So he appealed to the angels to go to Zor, but he never lived there. What are we to infer? The people of Zor weren't wild about him living there. (laughs) So he left. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, verse 31, and the firstborn said to the younger, our father's old, there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Remember, they're betrothed husbands. They're, they're engaged husbands. They didn't come with them. They didn't listen to them. Remember, they mocked them. So they don't have any future is how they're looking at it. So verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that he may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn, the firstborn girl, went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So he was so drunk, he had no idea that he had, has had sexual intercourse with his firstborn daughter. Verse 34, the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, so this is the younger of the two daughters, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in, you lie with him, that you may preserve offspring from our father. So they made the father drink wine that night. The younger rose, lay with him. He did not know. She lay down, and when she arose, same thing. Verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, and he was called Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger, meaning the younger daughter, also bore a son, and his name was called Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites to this day. So that's important information in terms of where did the two historic enemies of ancient Israel come from. Moab, if you look at this map, The Moabites are the ones that live on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites live to the north of the Moabites. So if you're at the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, the southeastern part of the Moabites, the north of them are the Ammonites. And they will be the historic enemies of Israel. And so this, this is important. Where did they come from? They come from the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his two daughters. Now, let's make a couple of comments. One author has said rather cynically, this is the rebirth of Sodom in a cave. That's maybe a little, but I mean, it's hard to look at this in any way positively. But it's, it's remarkable. Lot had offered his two daughters to the men of Sodom so that they could come in and rape them and substitute for these two angels. Now he, in a drunken stupor, is seduced by these two daughters, and he didn't even know it. Can you think of a more horrific, debauched picture of anything than that? You know, in a way, what it, it illustrates how far 
how degraded and depraved and debauched a society can become where something like this happened. It's hard to look at it positively, but it shows that what God had done with Sodom and Gomorrah was a just and righteous thing. And it also shows how much all of that had rubbed off on Lot's family. So, we're at the end of a very horrible chapter. I want to make a concluding comment or two. The Bible Bible assigns three major sins to Sodom. One is the sin of pride. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 50, it declares that, that Sodom and Gomorrah epitomize a city of pride. Number two is, of course, the sexual issues, the sexual immorality, the homosexuality, both in this chapter, but also in Jude, verse 7. Jude remembers that little epistle in the Old New Testament right before the book of Revelation. And it describes this of Sodom. It was a city of sexual immorality and unnatural desire. That's pretty clear because unnatural desire means there's got to be a standard of what's natural. And that standard is Genesis 2, a heterosexual monogamous kind of relationship. And they're absolutely perverting that. So there's no way you conclude anything else about that. And then finally, the in, in chapter 16, verse 49 of the book of Ezekiel as well, that Sodom did not care for the needy or the poor. This was a debauched, depraved society. But I want to make one final comment. In Matthew chapter 11... Jesus has been ministering in a triangle of cities on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, which was his home base, Chorazin, which is kind of north, a little bit northeast, and Bethsaida, which is to the to the northwest, and Bethsaida, which is to the east. And to each one of those three cities, he says, Woe be it to you. For if the Son of Man had walked in the streets of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But the Son of Man walked in your streets, and you have not. Woe be it to you. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida had the Son of God walking in their streets, and they did not repent. Jesus chooses the most wicked cities of the ancient world and said, if they had the same revelation you did, they would have repented. To me, that's an astonishing statement of Jesus. It's the Son of God. That's the God-man speaking. So which cities are more accountable before God, Sodom and Gomorrah or Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? That sets up a principle for us. You are accountable for the light received. In the world today, planet Earth 2016, who has more light? Iran or the United States? You understand what I'm saying? Who has more truth, the more accessibility to truth, to the light, the truth of God? I'm saying because Jesus is saying something absolutely shocking in Matthew chapter 11. 
If I had walked the streets of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. All right? Joel. I'm provoking all of thought today, but that's all right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when you read about what happened with Lot and his daughters and all the efforts that the angels took to get him out of Sodom. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, why bother? I mean, yeah. it's, uh, how do you balance the sovereignty of God with his graciousness here? It's like, you know, because it's almost like, why was this guy worth it? That's a plan. That's a plan. The only answer to that, at least I guess the way to start thinking about the answer to that, is the Bible declares that Lot is a righteous man. Which means that he had made a commitment of faith, probably more than likely when he was with his uncle Abraham and all of that, had heard and seen and witnessed all that God had done for Abraham and so on. Yeah, that God, yeah, that God just chooses out of His grace and His chesed to show compassion on Lot. It isn't. It certainly. It, I mean, it, it. You can't. You can't end chapter nineteen and have any positive feelings, attitudes, or assumptions about Lot. He's a pretty despicable guy. But he was a righteous man. He had made a decision of faith. Presumably that's the only way we can assume if he's called a righteous man that that's what he's... no less deserving of God's grace. Exactly, exactly, Joel. Now, how that then works out in eternity and so on is not... I I can't figure that out. But uh, it is an illustration of... uh, of what I think we are to always do when we keep coming across things like this. The incredible grace of God in people's lives. David, I mean, you know, obviously compared a lot with David, but David, who was a good king, he's the pattern for all the kings. Everybody's compared to David, but no, you know some of the things he did. And yet God continued to forgive him, continued to walk with him as he confesses his sin, but David repented from the sin. That's right. We, we don't know what Lot did after this. No, we, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us anymore. Yeah, we don't know that. that's so, right. Does it say anywhere where Lot responded to this kind of no. pregnant woman? Did he ask him for abortion or anything? <laughs> <laughs> no, none of that. <laughs> Nothing specific <laughs> like that. No, no, no. It doesn't say that. It doesn't you know, it doesn't. And really... From here on out, um, we will we will learn almost nothing new about Lot for the rest of Scripture. And who are the current uh, Moabites and uh, Ammonites in your opinion? Well, I mean, when um, when Nebuchadnezzar invaded that part of the world, he was he was really really hard on the Moabites and Ammonites. I mean, wiping out major segments of them. But I don't think we can, uh, with certainty, be able to identify necessarily who are the descendants of the Moabites and Ammonites in 2016. Not the Jordanians and the Palestinians and all that stuff. Just a joke. No, yeah. Okay, I'll take it as that. Daryl. The fact that God declared Lot righteous, 
uh, shouldn't surprise us any because he also has declared us. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And so because, I mean, I look back at my life and I, you know, none of us are the That's right. All of us. That's right. Absolutely. So, but for the grace of God, maybe ours isn't as bad as what Lot did, uh, my perception. But uh, sin is sin. And Absolutely. the one sin is yeah. enough to knock yeah. us out. That's right. But God showed graciousness in, in declaring us righteous. That's right. And that's why, as you know, I think about the fourth time I've said this, the twin themes of chapter 19 are destruction and deliverance. God owed nothing to Lot, but he showed him magnanimous grace and even pulling him out of the city. <laughs> At least the way it reads, against his will. He's lingering, he's holding on. But um, God still shows remarkable, but, and Daryl's absolutely correct, the same kind of grace that he's shown to every one of us in this room. And I'm, you know, repeat that again too, I'm so thankful that's how God deals with all of us. If God only dealt with the human race on the basis of justice, there would be no hope for any human being that has ever lived, is living, or will live. But that's not our God. And that's why those words, and I try, I try to really accentuate those in this chapter, those words like the word chesed, those words, that this, this chapter is about God, not just a lot. This chapter is about God. God's justice, but God's compassion. That's why my prayer, I'll quickly make this comment. My prayer for the United States, we prayed it this morning, Peggy and I, when we had our uh, morning prayers after breakfast, is that God would send a revival to this country. That's our hope. It isn't whom we're going to elect as president. Not that that isn't an important issue. But whomever is elected president is not going to bring spiritual renewal. It's going to come from the church. It's going to, and I don't mean just those buildings on the corner. I'm talking about the living body, the church. Mm-hmm. That's where revival will come. And it's important that we see it, uh, that, that God would renew our nation spiritually through, through people coming to faith and renewing their commitment to him and so on. Because that's our greatest need. All right. Now, we're almost out of time, but we, we still have about four minutes, five minutes. So let me start chapter 20. And if we don't get it finished, maybe you would be able to read it for next week. Chapter 20 and, and into 21 is the birth of Isaac, but we'll never get to that. But chapter 20, we're introduced to a guy, Abimelech, who becomes really important. But you see Abraham doing to Abimelech with his wife Sarah the same thing he had done with the Pharaoh in Egypt years earlier. So let's, let's get some of these things settled. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. From there, meaning from Mamre, where Abraham was watching, looking at the valley, down the valley, saw the burning, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, G-E-R-A-R. Now, if you, you have to, it's not hard to find, but you can find it on your map. Now, he has crossed, he's up here in Mamre, 
And now he goes, he goes towards Shur. Remember, Shur is one of the old names for Egypt. So he's headed this way. But Kadesh is down here. Gerar is up here. Gerar is very close to the Mediterranean, very close to what is today the Gaza Strip. The Bible doesn't tell us why he does this. It doesn't explain why he does this. Why does he move there? The Bible doesn't say it, but he does. So he's now in Gerar. You got it? Okay? Now this is this is really remarkable because the previous chapter before chapter 19, the angels, the Yahweh, and two angels that showed up said to Sarah, in one year you're going to give birth to the covenant son. So chapter 20, you'd be you're all excited. Oh boy, it's going to happen. But right on the verge of God fulfilling the covenant promise, Abraham almost blows it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. He almost blows it. And God has to interfere again to protect him. And it all revolves around this man, Abimelech. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this should cause you to remember the end of chapter 12, when Abraham had moved from Or the Chaldees up to Harar, down into Shechem, and down, and he goes down to Egypt because there's a famine. And to the Pharaoh, he says, this beautiful woman that's with me is my sister. Remember? Mm-hmm. So he's doing the same thing here. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So what word would you use to describe Abraham? He's being deceitful. He's being duplicitous. Why? Because he's afraid that Abimelech will kill him to get Sarah. So she's my sister. Oh, then I can take her. And he takes her. Now listen to me, because we're almost out of time. The contrast between Abimelech and Abraham here is really distinct. Abraham comes off as deceptive. Abimelech comes off as more righteous. Because he's more concerned about what he's chosen to do. And what happens, it's just it's really something what happens as a result of this narrative to both Abraham and to Abimelech. So, it's the same setup. Verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, I love how the ESV has translated this, Behold, you are a dead man. (laughs) Because the woman whom you have taken, she is a man's wife. And we learn a couple of things here. Number one, we are reminded of God's view of marriage. We're reminded of how sacred God looks at this. We're we're reminded of how serious God takes this. And a society that just wantonly takes men's wives is not a society that meets with God's standards. And there is no way 
he is going to let this happen to Sarah. Why? Because she's pregnant with Isaac. This whole, everything is threatened because if, if Abimelech takes her, takes her as his wife, has sexual intercourse with her, the purity and the sacredness of the line will be violated. She was pregnant at the time? Well, we assume that because in chapter 18, the angels had said, when we come back here in a year, you will have your son. He will already have been born. So we're inferring that. Now, Abimelech, I better, let me just, one quick thing and then we'll stop. And Now, Abimelech had not approached her, meaning they had not had sexual intercourse. So he said, Lord, will you kill innocent people? Why does he ask that question of God? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. <laughs> It's a very, very important theological answer. It's really, it's really remarkable that here you got this guy Abimelech, and he is acting and talking and thinking and responding more righteously than Abraham. So come back next week and we'll deal with all. Okay. You know, the king is not afraid of anything. Abraham is. So we cannot say we cannot make the comparison. He's the king, and Abraham is afraid. Guys running around. Well, oh, sure, but Abraham's supposed to be a man of faith and trust and that God's going to keep the promise and take care of him. But Abraham's a human. He's just like you and me. Not like me, or like you, but like me. All right, we got to quit here. So let me pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for our time of study and your word this morning, now into the afternoon. Thank you for the, uh, the remarkable clarity of your word. And as we've studied chapter 19, uh, a very difficult chapter in the Bible, it really is. But we do see you are God who's just, you're God who's righteous, and you'll hold humanity accountable. But Lord, you're also immensely gracious, incredibly merciful, and overwhelmingly magnanimous. And you showed that a lot. And that's what we're to see. And even, even in the midst of that, we saw that verse, and God remembered Abraham. He was gracious and merciful to Lot, but he remembered the covenant promises that he'd made to Abraham. God, that's who you are. You're a God of chesed, covenant faithfulness, covenant loyalty, covenant love. And we depend on that because every one of us in this room, if we made a decision of faith in Jesus Christ, are in a covenant relationship with you. The Bible calls it a new covenant filled with many, many promises. And as we see with Abraham the unbelievable faithfulness you exhibited toward him in those covenant promises, we therefore know that you will keep the promises you've made to each one of us. That's the kind of God you are. And we praise you for that. Thank you for that. Most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 See you next week. Good to see you.